0: hello again i'm kalila johnson your undefeated life coach and the host of broken into purpose podcast i'm so excited that you decided to join me for episode two um today's title is stockholm syndrome now that's a syndrome in itself but we're going to touch on recognizing narcissistic relationships and i think that this is such a um a, a word that is You know, sometimes it's thrown around a lot, but a lot of people are finding out that they've experienced relationships detrimental to themselves and others um, of being involved with a narcissist. And um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to touch on that, because I think that um, as someone who helps those um, who are natural born leaders, I'm a coach that helps those that are natural born leaders. who um, have lost their power due to trauma. And so I help them rediscover their power after trauma and reconnect with the power within. And many of them that I see have dealt with narcissistic relationships and much of so have I. And um, I've given you a little bit as far as the first part, but let's start putting some names to it. So I first wanna talk about the Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Now, um, the first time I was introduced to this, I was a little girl, and I remember a movie called, um, I think it was called Patty Hearst. And if you remember this, this is a movie that... Um, came out that talked about a woman who uh, was taken captive with other people by bank robbers. Now, they spent 131 hours with their bank robbers. Um, They worked at a bank and they were taken captive for 131 hours. And that time that they spent with the captors turned them into where they related more so with the captors than they actually did with authority. And so this was a very interesting story because I remember watching the movie and saying, what in the world? Like, who does that? And of course, as a child, um, I I remember being there watching it with my mom and, and saying, and I'm hearing her saying, who would do that? I would never. And, you know, the conversation of being able to watch a story on TV and disconnect from it, even though it was a true story, it was based on a true story, Um, Recognizing her story as being so foreign and not being able to relate to it. But that that story stayed with me because as I started to grow and growing up in a in a home that was so much abuse, as much as I remember hearing my mom say, who would do that? That's kind of how I saw her she was Patty Hearst to me. Um, And just to give you some more background, um, so I I remember during this time, we we were watching the movie and she thought it was crazy. Um, But I remember this one situation that turned a lot of things around. Of course, we had seen a lot of things as young children, but it was about the 1980s and uh, my mom and sisters, You know, we were all uh, awoken by my stepdad and he was saying, I'm putting you out. Everybody get out. And we're just little girls, very, very small. And I remember him saying, pack all of your stuff and go. And I remember my mom um, being tossed out and her stuff. It was a big trash bag. He had destroyed all of her things, her things and my oldest sister's things. He had done something as far as. Urinating in her purses. I mean, he was, it was just derogatory. It was, um, this wasn't the first attack, but I think this was the one that probably um, one of the many um, that ingrained in me because this was a time that after so many attacks, so many times where my stepdad would, you know, embarrass us, the police would have to be called, we would have to run out of the house, um, so many uh, traumatic events would happen. This was actually a time for me where I had the greatest relief. Because in my mind, seeing my mom in that movie and realizing that um, my mom was still drawn to a person who treated her so badly, that called her names, that humiliated her in public, that destroyed her things. And then all of a sudden they were back on again and everything was as if we forgot about it. But I still remember the scars were still there. And so whenever that situation would constant, it would be a up and then down. I hate you, then I love you. And so just seeing that drama, just being woken up as little girls and having that constant a, a fear of him because he abused us, too. Sometimes he would wake us up in the wee hours of the morning, always out of our sleep and beat us until our bodies were bloody. It was it was the anger and the rage. And then he would wake us up and say, I'm so sorry I did this to you. But next time you got to listen. That constant unsettling, that, that fear and not knowing what you could actually do to prevent it because you actually don't know what even set it off. So I remember this day very, very um, like it was yesterday. So it was me and my sisters and he was like, everybody get out. And believe it or not, I mean, because we were so we were young, but we were so used to the trauma, the, the back and forth. I was like, please get us out of here. And so I remember uh, we had to go and get relatives. My sisters, uh, my oldest sister went to live about an hour away in Tacoma Park with my oldest aunt. And my mom and the two youngest went to go stay with my aunt Valerie, who also lived in uh, Tacoma Park with her husband and her two little girls. Um, they were they were both, pa- well, actually at the time, um, he was going to school to become a pastor and the other one was a dean of a school. Um, and so they were in really good seemingly stable homes and um, they were beautiful and clean. And um, of course, uh, they had the image of all togetherness. So it just seemed like it was just a better idea. Now, for some reason, I had to go live all the way in New Jersey because um, I don't really know why. I called my grandmother and she said, okay. And so I had to go live with my grandparents over in New Jersey, which was about three and a half hours away. I was the furthest away from everyone. And so I recall going to stay there, and it was difficult to be away from my sisters. Of course, there was so much chaos, and there was always drama. There was always all this uh, different things, anxiety. We didn't get very much rest. We didn't know we were going to get beat out of bed. Uh, and then I go into this atmosphere where I'm staying with my grandparents, and it's quiet. It's in a beautiful neighborhood, quiet neighborhood. Um, I am, you know, I'm, I'm I've got clean clothes. Um, I I am made to make my bed. I know what time I'm eating breakfast. I'm eating breakfast every morning. I'm taking my bath, I'm making my bed. I am I am um, coming home from school. My granddad would pick me up and we would either walk from home from school together. My grandma would have my food ready at a certain time. I ate breakfast, I ate dinner very early, about 3.45, because then we were going to watch the Oprah show. And um, it was so much stability, quiet. My aunt, who was back and forth from college, would make play dates for me um, with the kids at church. And for the first time, um, I I wasn't going to school looking raggedy. My mom would take all of these clothes from other people. She could never say no to them. So she would take their, their destroyed clothes that they should have thrown out. And I would go to school looking dirty even when the clothes were clean. Whatever their kids were destroyed, they would give it to her because she had four kids. So they thought they were doing her a favor or or they just were getting rid of things out of their home and she never could say no. So I I, I remember just going to school unprepared, you know, hadn't slept, probably drama beforehand, maybe got beat out of bed. So I was always tired. I couldn't focus in school. But this time I was in this place where I was in this stability and I'm getting A's and B's. I'm starting to... um, I'm starting to come to myself. I'm starting to recognize that I'm not such a bad kid after all. I'm not so angry. My grandmother put me in therapy immediately and every Tuesday I went to see Mr. Tim, which we would play checkers and I wasn't really, under, really paying attention and he was asking me questions, but I trusted him. He always lost. <laughs> and um, it was the stability. Now there was other dynamics in this house because I, I noticed that my grandmother and grandfather didn't talk very much. If they were watching the same show, if they would watch it in different rooms, I I noticed that there wasn't a lot of interaction. But based on all of the interaction that was in the house that I had come from, it was it was a different pace. And so um, during this time, I, I you know I just started to I believe I started to blossom. I started to um, my uncle Bobby bought me a. piano, I started to um, draw, I started to read, I started to, um, I would play, I would make songs and my aunt Sherry would come in and from college and she would, when she was home for the weekends and I would play her and she would give me all of her undivided attention and she would tell me how wonderful the song was. You did a good job. That's a wonderful song. She made me feel like I was the greatest, um, most talented person in the world. My self-esteem started to grow. I wasn't, I wasn't just this bad kid that always needed a beating sometimes and I didn't understand what I did. It was this stability that was starting to grow. I even learned coping mechanisms for how to get the anger out. And I, I started to blossom. In many ways, I still miss them so much. Although it was dramatic, I I really missed my sisters. I really, um, but I knew they were safe. And that, that gave me peace. So about two years in, maybe two and a half years in, I, I remember a knock at the door, and it was my mom and my sisters, and I knew they were coming to visit, and I couldn't wait because I was so excited. I missed them so much, and they came, but this time they came with him, and I couldn't understand um, what, why, why is he here? Why is he here? We, we, we made it away from him. We got away from our uh, attacker. We got away from our, our captor. Uh, we got away from him. Um, but no, uh, my mom says, he's changed. He's different now. And I knew he wasn't. I knew here was the Patty Hearst situation again at Stockholm Syndrome. And my grandmother pulled me aside and said, you don't have to go if you don't want to. And all of that stability, all of that stability. I didn't really want to go, but my fear was I couldn't even sleep imagining the torture they would go through without me. So I said, no, I'm, I wouldn't go back. I'll suffer with them because I won't get any rest thinking and realizing that they were there. So, of course, back at that place, it was more of the same uh, torture, you know, abuse, um, many just insane situations. Um, I became a teenage mom at 14 and, and, and met someone who was now my first boyfriend, who was older and in high school while I was in middle school. And and. Believe it or not, I really don't think I was looking for a boyfriend. I was more of a tomboy. I just liked to be outside alone on my bicycle. I loved being outside. Um, But all of a sudden there was a time where I just felt like everybody's eyes was on me. Like I went from a little girl being ignored to all of a sudden I was this, like it it, it was determined by the outside uh, men that I was a woman now, I was 13, and all of this attention I guess I had developed and all of a sudden I couldn't go anywhere without attention, attention from grown men. And so i made the decision that I felt like I had to, which was to get a boyfriend. So I could say, I have a boyfriend. I, if they were gonna make me grow up, I didn't wanna be with a 30 year old, but I decided there was this cute boy on the bus. Every time I rode the bus, I would see this cute dark skinned guy with the deep dimples and he made everybody laugh. And truthfully, I just wanted to be protected. So he became my boyfriend. And goes the, the place of manipulation of a little girl who who was not yet a woman, had no understanding of what a woman or relationship really was, feeling tossed into um, this world of adulthood to make decisions because life was unfair. And then I became pregnant and then became a mother of a daughter. So through this, I am wanting so badly to be different. The only thing I knew about right motherhood was don't let her go through what you went through. Don't become your mother. Don't be Patty Hurst. But somehow my very fear came to pass. It came to pass over and over and over again. It came to pass with my um, daughter's father. It came to pass with my son's father. It came to pass with a relationship that that made me feel like they were doing me a favor that the control and manipulation of, of a man that would say, you're not good enough to be my girlfriend, but I don't want you to leave me, but just stay here with me, but I'm gonna cheat on you, but I don't want you to go anywhere, but you're just not good enough because you, the back and forth, the mental games of I, I, I want you, but you're just not good enough. I I want you to meet my mom, but she won't approve of you. I, I I want you to be a part of my world, but everybody can't know about you. The the games played, the control and manipulation, and relationship after relationship, and you you move on to the next one. This one will treat me differently, and and there's just another. Another level of manipulation. Another level of games. Another level of, and you're trying to figure out why can't I find anyone? Everyone's the same. Was it everyone, or was it or was it the way I perceived everything? Although I had not actually, uh, I could recognize what was wrong i could recognize this wasn't the right way to treat me i really did not know how to recognize what way i was supposed to be treated so when it became time to i, I got pregnant with my my third child and I, I i met this man we were he seemed so mysterious and quiet before i was pregnant this us go back a little bit to when i met him so this is after a relationship of seven years that I had dealt with this man who was um, a college student, eventually college graduate, but um, would play these mind games, cheat on me, then tell me that I wasn't good enough and he wants to marry me but when I wanna leave, but then I'm not good enough to marry and then it would be, we need to be friends, but I don't want you to leave me. These mind games, these mind games, these mind games. And so as these mind games continued and finally I make it back. I I was living in uh, Virginia at the time and I make it back to Baltimore. Um, The just feeling not enough. The mind games were just enough. I was just so done. And I was I was just tired. I wanted to know what was what was wrong with me. Why wasn't I worthy? Why wasn't I good enough? Why did I have to play so many games? Where where? Where will I find my companion? Now I have two children and it was as if I had this scarlet letter on my head. And so I, I, I there was this, this unspoken rule that I had to settle. Cause you know, you're, 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 you're scarred now. So I remember being, um, it was Thanksgiving and I had missed the ride to ride out of, out of to go to my aunt's house with my family. My car wouldn't make it, it was really an um, inexpensive old car and so I just decided to go to the, the, the bar and get me a couple of coolers. At that time, that was my friend. I decided alcohol would be my coping mechanisms when I didn't know how to handle the anxiety that would rise up and I um, didn't know where to place it. And I kind of liked it that way anyway. I'm, I was kind of glad that the family had, had missed me. It was just something that I was doing out of um, obligation. And so I went to the bar and there was a man outside in the nice black car. He, seemed, he creeped me out at first, I, I won't say. The first reaction was always he creeped me out because he kept staring at me. And um, he just was outside waiting. And so when I went in, got my coolers, got back outside and he was waiting. And I really usually just turn people down. I immediately say, just leave me alone because I really want to be alone. Had no desire of being in a relationship at that moment. I just wanted to be alone. Just leave me alone and be alone with my coolers. And as I went to the car, I mean, as I went past the car, he seemed so shy. It was as if he was and that put my guard down. It was like he He's he must not do this a lot. He's attractive and he has a nice car, but he looks like he's like bashful. So I it put me at ease. Like this man doesn't seem like he's the rest. So instead I you know, I actually I think I took his number or I gave him mine. I don't really remember because usually that was the thing. I would take your number, and if I took your number I probably wouldn't have called you, so somehow I must have given him my number. And he called. And um, we went out and um, there were signs immediately. (laughs) Now, I always do these little things, even as back then, I would do these little tests. So um, as he came to my apartment and wait for me to take me out, he sat in the living room. And um, and as he sat in the living room, I um, I went to go take my trash out and I wanted to see if he would offer to take it out for me an apartment i'm at the third floor like uh will you you know just i'm not gonna ask you to take it out just something simple i know that may have been but that back then it made a lot of sense to me like let me see if he's gonna help me take out the trash it's just a sign of you know that you know that chivalry or you know so anyway i went out to take the trash and he didn't offer i said i'm gonna go take the trash out and he said okay and at that moment i said this he's not getting a second date. And um, as I went out, it was just bothering me. Things like that used to bother me. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just things like that. It's just like it. it they they did they did bother me. And so um, when we went out, you know, first thing that I, I was to do, like get this over with. As long as he can get me my favorite drink, um, top shelf. This, you know. Three of those should help me numb that I'm out here with this person. It didn't seem like he had a lot of personality. He was a bit shy. I love to dance. So I would just dance and I, I would just already determine before the date that I wasn't gonna go out with him again. So I think, you know, I'm just gonna have fun. And we went to a place I didn't know anybody and just kind of, and I just, you know, enjoyed myself and just danced a little bit. And, um, and then at the end of the night, I went back home. I was like, okay, thank you. And after that, it was like going to be a wrap. But then I realized I left my wallet in his car and I do not know where this man lives. And I left my wallet and had two hundred dollars in it. And as a single mom, that was a lot of money. I just went to the bank because I never go out without any money on me. And I want to make sure that I had it. But I asked him to hold it when I don't remember why I asked him to hold it. But I, I care. I didn't like carrying a purse. So I had a little wallet and I actually left it with him. Well, he actually contacted me and said, hey, I got your wallet. And that to me was like, wow, he's honest. So it overrode the simple signs of not taking out the trash, the simple little things that were like, you know, my little detectors of whether or not he was a gentleman. And I said, wow, he's trustworthy. And so uh, we did go out again, and um, again, he was he was shy. He wasn't very much fun. He just seemed like, um, but I decided because of his qualifications, He his mom and dad were still together. I didn't meet them yet, but they were still together. Um, his brother was very successful, educated and successful. He was in college and he had two jobs. And um, I knew that he had children, but he said that his his, his, his daughters his children's mothers were, were very she was very jealous and so she he could not find his children and I just thought that was the saddest story ever. And I just just caved. Well, it wasn't too long after we were dating and somehow I was pregnant. And I knew I did not want another child. I was not ready to be married. I did not want to. And as a matter of fact, there were signs in the relationship where I felt as though I really did not know if I wanted to be in this relationship. As a matter of fact, it was it, it was as if when he was around me, I couldn't sleep very well. There were just these signs that, you know, I didn't know about my gift of discernment. I just you know i would always take it on i would always think it was my fault it was something that was but there were signs but because of the trauma i always thought it was because of me so i i ignored the song the small still voice i ignored the signs i ignored the the triggers that certain people gave me and i I ignored the signs where i could not rest when i was near him no sleep i mean no sleep it was just he there was no peace I actually felt like I needed a break he he exhausted me I was truly exhausted couldn't figure out whenever he was around I was always exhausted It was like just him being in the room with me made me exhausted but I kept looking like ignore because you're attracted to people who aren't attracted to you and this person was very very wanting to be around me as a matter of fact we got an argument because he wanted to be around me every day and I, I just was like I need I can only do three days a week like I had to schedule him because of how much he drained me it wasn't anything that I could put my finger on it just was he drained the energy the life out of me and just being around in the same room just drained me but he seemed like a nice guy he liked sports he was shy but he had you know I I guess I looked at the paper and I said I've got to get over the people that I'm used to attracting I've got to go past my natural passions because obviously I don't choose well So I ignored, I ignored what I felt like around him. And so one of the things that I recall were um, during the time, once I became pregnant, it was like he shifted. All of a sudden, he started to become, now, mind you, this was from a person who love bombed me on Valentine's Day, soon after, about a month after we started dating. Um, It was probably two months after we started dating. He... Sent every, he must have spent a thousand dollars on Valentine's Day. I never had anyone, a big mink bear chocolates big chocolates like roses like I was the talk of the call center like it was amazing it was the first time now coming from the relationship where I was I was the games that were played like I love you then I don't want to be with you. you know all of this all of a sudden this person just wanted to be around me wanted to be around me wanted to be around me the complete opposite of of what I had just dealt with the mind games that I just dealt with for seven years and so I was sitting here and I would override the feelings of you know this is too much I really don't feel like you know it would be a it felt like a a chore and um, I overrode that because this person looked good on paper surely it was just my dysfunction that was not wanting to be around him it had to be me he seemed so you know he was successful he had two jobs he was a hard worker he was quiet which made it seem like he was a little bit shy someone it would seem like he wasn't all that um he wasn't very charming he just seemed that he had um you know now probably just a lack of personality meaning that you know he was just he just needed a little grooming and so it became a project almost as oh he just needs a little bit bit of love just needs someone to love At that point, I decided I'm going to love him back to hell. (laughs) I know, I know. I know now. So through the relationship, it was, and once I became pregnant, I just was so disappointed. And, um, you know, I remember all of a sudden he was just, he turned. It turned from this this man that wanted to be around me all the time to um, just a jerk just someone that seemed like he was talking to a woman on the phone in front of me. And then I'm like, no, he can't be like, it was just overnight. A turn of emotions was once he thought he had me, it was just a a jackal and Mr. Hyde. But I was so ashamed that when he said, we might as well just get, get married, I agreed. Because I was ashamed to be a mother of another child out of wedlock my family was very religious and came from a church of several generations and it was so much shame connected to our name and a lot of it I had caused so I just wanted to make it right and he looked good on paper so I ignored the signs and it was about two months into the marriage that I remember um him arguing I, I kept telling him like you have he left pornography out he had an addiction and I did not know that ahead of time but he had an addiction to porno and he would leave the. he brought everything out, and we would move together he brought all of his porno in and he would just leave it we had two sides of the closet and he would leave it on my side and put it on my shoes because he didn't want to mess up his shoes he would leave his bags of pornography put bags and bags of pornography first of all my kids are small you cannot leave this out they can easily find it the kid the bags weren't they weren't tied they were just open bags of porno that were sitting on the shoes on the floor so my kids who are small could easily get into it my kids uh you know and I would I was arguing with him and saying you can't keep leaving this out for my kids this is abuse and then I would tell him like why are you putting this on my side like this shouldn't even be in my house this needs to get out and so um I remember um him saying, like, I took his his bag and put it on his side, and he said, "Don't touch that again." And if you touch my stuff again, um, and I and I I, I forgot what exactly he said. He says, "If you touch," he he threatened me, but I don't recall if he threatened me. Like, if you better not. Well, it was more like, "You better not touch my stuff again." And I I'm just thinking, like, okay, whatever. And so I touched his head, and he got up calmly and punched me in my eye and knocked me to the floor. I am eight months pregnant. I'm eight months pregnant, and I'm sitting on the floor like, what just happened? Now, I know how to fight. All of the trauma and bullies and things of that nature, I'm a fighter, so I'm not one that really was probably a good, um, from what I could understand, would be a good person for a man to put his hands on me. You you know, he but i was in shock because i'm laying there like did i just get hit in the eye like it there was no rage the argument was not that serious it was like don't touch my don't touch my my hat or and and it was hit me in the eye. He didn't even show rage. He just punched me in the eye and knocked me down. And then I'm waiting for him to come to himself. I'm like, I don't know what he's going through. Maybe it's something else and I'm constantly blaming it on maybe the stress of having a new baby. Maybe he's thinking, you know, I'm always trying to personalize it and internalize it and then create a a dialogue because when things don't make sense you've got to create a dialogue this is what we do um, they call us empaths the ones that feel things you've got to make a storyline the storyline has to make sense so if the storyline doesn't make sense it, it I, I don't know where to put it I don't know where to fit it like you just hit me and and it wasn't that serious and I don't know where to now I don't know where to put you at I don't know how to I don't know where to put this in my mind I don't know how to rationalize this what just happened and so I remember him walking out and I'm just still, I'm internalizing. I'm like, he's my new husband. I don't know what he's going through. I have to be patient. I don't know. What do I do? What do I do? And then he comes back and I'm expecting a full blown, what did I just do? Like something explosive, like how in the world did I just hit my brand new wife? What is I thinking? I'm so sorry. And at that moment, I'm going to be mad for a while because I don't know what in the world. But instead, what I got was and you better not call the police or you're not gonna have any money for your baby. What in the world? And immediately I said, who did, who did I just marry? Who, who is this person? And much of the same, much of the same lies and deception Cheating, telling me I wasn't worthy to be a wife, joint (laughs) phone plans, cheating every three months, getting me arrested falsely, saying I hit him with a car, no doubt, like, you know, because you can really just. You can just um, call the police. And because he knew I wouldn't do the same thing to him without valid reason, even though he would restrain me, I did not see that as abuse because I was thinking in my mind from so much trauma and seeing what my mom went through that unless he punched me in the face, I wasn't abused. So I would not get him arrested unless he actually hit me. But he would call them on me and say he would tell the doctor things, even though it, it was just so much. And I'm going through this. Um, I, I give more outline in my book, Undefeated, Broken Into Purpose. Um, and I'm going through this because I, I kind of want to get, you know, I can talk about this and I can talk about all of the different situations. But what I do want to get to is the symptoms of a narcissist. The And when I understood when all of a sudden it was like, I started to join these um, groups and I started to really find out because again, Sometimes I would keep some things. Even when I went to therapy, I went to therapy trying to get us therapy and he wouldn't go. So um, and I remember the first time I went to therapy, I had to our insurance. You needed to um, have a referral. So the first time I went to therapy, I was telling um, the doctor, like, I can't get this man to stop leaving pornography around my children. He like he laughs about it, like, ha ha, my bad. Like, it's no big deal. And it's abuse. My children are small. Um, I remember having a seven year old birthday party for my seven year old and walking in and all the small kids and their parents. And he had the big screen television. As soon as you turned the TV on, it was pornography. And these kids were scarred. And I was so humiliated for the kids and for the parents because I knew that that was abuse. You were exposing them to something that you cannot do, no matter what, on my computers. People having sex would be there. He would leave it on in the PlayStations or in the in the video games. He would leave it in my kids. Like he would leave it on the open and he would act like he just was so forgetful. And I was like, this is abuse. How are you, you've got it. Like, I don't know how to make you realize that. And so I said, we've got to get counseling. And so when I went to the counselor and I explained to him some of the things I was trying to get someone to make sure he understood, like this is serious. And after the session, the doctor looked at me and said, I'll give you a referral, but it's not gonna work. I was like, what? Did you just tell me therapy won't work? Like, I had never heard of narcissism. It wasn't brought up then. I continued to go to the doctor um, and therapist. And through that, all of a sudden I started to not sleep. I didn't pay attention that it was because he would not allow me to sleep. I just had a baby, my hormones were all over the place and I started to um, look for help. Like I'm feeling emotionally unbalanced. I don't, I can't sleep, I can't think, I I don't remember anything because I'm not sleeping and you know, my baby is colicky and and nobody in the house is sleeping well And, and I'm trying to figure, I can't remember what's happening. I don't know what today is, I'm just out of it. I just need a doctor to help me. And so I found out soon after, like I had the baby that my, My then husband was going to had a psychologist, psychiatrist, and he not only had a psychiatrist, but he had been going there for two years and I didn't even know he had issues. So that made me even more like, oh, he's it's not him. He has mental disorders. And so if he had cancer, I would stay. And of course, there's something. okay. so he's got a doctor. Oh, okay. I wish he would have told me before we got married. But that makes it that makes me now more responsible to stay with him and help him through these issues. Finding out. He had a psychiatrist that his mom had a psychiatrist and it was the same psychiatrist. Me not knowing too much about psychiatrists, I knew about therapists, but I never had know, known about psychiatrists. I didn't know the difference between psychiatrists, psychologists and therapists. So I said, listen, I can't think I feel unbalanced. I need to go to your psychology. I went to the same one. I did not know then that it was unethical for this doctor to also be seeing his mother and medicating his mother and medicating him and medicating me. I also saw a therapist as well. I just wanted to get better. And so in the same office, I went to a therapist and I went to him and it was weird because every time I went to this psychiatrist, he never really needed any information in five minutes. In about two weeks, he had diagnosed me with bipolar. He started giving me the same medications that he gave his mother. Like there were times when I run out and she would have the same psycho psychiatry, what is it, Um, um, psychotic medicines. And I'm like, oh, we are on the same medicine. We have the same thing, but this is a hered- bipolar is hereditary, and I don't have anyone that I can tell that that is bipolar in my family. But you do. Your grandmother's schizophrenic. Your, you know, your father has social anxiety, and your mother is bipolar. So you know, and you're being <laughs> treated for you know, you and he only goes. He only went when he was depressed, and so I tried to figure out. You know, I just wanted help. I couldn't see what was happening around me because what happens when you stop sleeping, is like, I can't see what's happening. And I didn't really put it together that my ex-husband was filling in the doctor what my symptoms were. So he started putting me on all of these different psychotic medicines. At one point, I was on 10 different medicines and literally he didn't talk to me more than five minutes. He didn't ask my symptoms. He just would give me a different medicine. So obviously I'm thinking that my ex-husband, well, my ex-husband now, was giving him the right information, but because I couldn't remember or think, I couldn't possibly fathom. Although I had went through all of those things, I was still in the midst of it. So I could not fathom anyone giving someone false information. I, I just assumed that even when you do the wrong thing, they're still good in everyone. No way could someone be that divisive and that cruel. And then there began the times of being arrested where I would be without my medication, which would take me on a psychotic um, break, where I would be suicidal because I would be without it. He would never show up for court, it was just more so an accusation alone. He would be gone for three days. Even to the point where, so he could conceive another child, he had me arrested falsely. And it was another child. And there's a lot more to that. It got to the point where even he tried to run from that child and I found the woman and she was, she's the mistress, but she was, she was a college graduate. She was someone that, you know, was beautiful when she found them, but because of the mental break, she ended up being worse off than I. And I took her in. Yeah, because it was no longer about you cheated with my husband. It was more about I saw a woman and we were the only ones that probably could, except for those other victims that that have no face at this point, we were the only ones that could recognize what it was to be face to face with such a monster. She would tell me her horrific stories of being dragged around the house One minute told that she was loved and the next moment told that, you know, and just dragged out and and her things being destroyed. And because of how he looked on the outside, it did not. No one would believe you. And now she's drinking alcohol to cover the pain and she doesn't look the same. And she looks like a homeless person and her eyes are bloodshot. and, And she is her skin is peeling because she doesn't look the same. She's unattractive. She looks like a homeless person and nobody would know that she was once this beautiful woman who actually was attractive who was in 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 school for computer and had a had a honors degree you know had high scores in college and, and had a lot of things and was over here on a visa she was an african woman beautiful woman who was educated but i knew and instead of looking at a woman that was cheating with my husband, I looked at a fellow victim. And after I had to leave that house and live in the hood and slip on the floor to get away from him, I invited her and her daughter, my then husband's child that he tried to run from, into my home where we slept because he took everything that, we, we, that belonged to us. We slept on air mattresses. And I took her to child support and I and we, well, I supported her. I would help her take a bath because I knew what it was. Not only was I recovering from this man, but I was also helping his mistress recover. Because I knew. And not many people would have believed me. That's the thing about narcissism, narcissism. That they, there's a disconnect from from emotions. I can they can become what they need to become to fit in the room. They have this sense of success. There can be a lot of narcissism. Have leadership roles. They can you know I've come across narcissistic leaders. I've come across narcissistic um, you know pastors of. Uh, Large churches, and I come across narcissistic um, family members who who will tr- destroy your name, all while smiling in your face. It 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 truly bog, it, it bogs my mind because they seem to have it together because they can become. It's like they can become, and meanwhile you are there because you feel, and you're there looking beat up and destroyed, and they get to walk away with their composure. A narcissist. And so we began talking about the Stockholm syndrome where we see the resemblance of constantly drawing to your very attacker, where you are attracted to that very thing. And then we we are ending with some signs of some narcissism. And so I've given you a bit of my own personal story and I'm not gonna keep bragging because I want you to understand that there are narcissists around you. And this is not a place of, oh no, everybody's a narcissist. Don't let this grit take you into suspicion, but I want you to start to understand that there are people with a reprobate mind. The Bible talks about the reprobate mind where I'll turn you over to your flesh, where no longer will you have the natural senses to be able to stop that place where you're like, I'm going too far. That place in us that that tells us that we're still we're not too far from God, that place where we can repent, we we can come before God and say, I've, I've done too much. I've gone too far. But there are some that have this place and they say that narcissism cannot recover. Now, I won't debate that. I'm still learning a lot about it. But once you start to let, recognize the language of it, for those of us that say, no one will believe me, there are more of us that are starting to be able to expose what it feels like, what it looks like. The invisible prisons that they can become and and the invisible monsters that they become. And, uh, I wanted to read you, so I opened up my laptop that keeps giving this buzzing noise, so forgive me, but I wanted to give you, um, I'm just gonna read off a couple of these um, these quick brief, um, I don't know if it goes completely in depth, but I'll just read you a few of some of the ways that you can tell that you've dealt with a narcissist. Impaired ability to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. That's the, the sign of a narcissism, but that's for them. Excessively attuned to reactions of others, but only if perceived as relevant to self over or underestimate of own effect on others. Relationships largely superficial and exist to serve self-esteem regulation. Mutual Mutuality, constrained by little genuine interest in others' experience pre- and predominance of a need for personal gain. Goal setting is based on gaining approval from others. They are often unaware of their own motivations. Personal standards are unreasonably unre- high in order to see oneself as exceptional or lo- too low based on a sense of entitlement. Exaggerated self appraisal may be inflated or deflated or facilitate between extremes. Emotional regulation mirrors fluctuation in self-esteem, feelings of entitlement, either overt or covert, self-centeredness and condescending to others, firmly holding to the belief that one is better than others, excessive attempts to attract and be the focus of the attention of others, admiration seeking. Um, There's a lot of things and they say that everybody has a bit of narcissism in them because sometimes you can read these and be like, well, you know, we're, we're goal oriented we go for things but I think that when you really really go into it and of course when I talked to when I really started to really um, unpack this thing and even at the end of my sessions with the therapist they started to recognize that I wasn't the one with the problem It was actually him after years On this medication and actually um, You know being Having to wean myself off because the doctors Could not see what was happening they did not know who To believe Um, they believed him And of course I was just constantly Coming Um, after a while It was him that ended up in the hospital saying That he wanted to kill himself it was him That started to show the signs it started to attack The doctors when he went into the hospital They he started to verbally attack It was him that started to lose the composure As we got to the end as I started to gain my strength back and wean myself off the medication the tables were starting to turn and so um, that's when he wanted me to lose everything but at that time I was willing to let everything go because my mind was more important and I knew that if I had survived him I could survive other things and not only was I able to survive him but I was able to start from scratch and I was able to even help his daughter and his daughter's mother recover now there's more to that, and um, and you know it is still a ongoing thing when you are, you know, when you are in a situation where no one around you completely sees. But what I do understand is, is that God is bringing a veil. He's opening. He's opening up the eyes of His people. He's opening up the eyes. I think of the court systems. He's opening up the eyes and starting a dialogue. So here I am doing my part to to bypass the feelings of hiding what I've gone through because feelings like nobody's gonna believe me because people have this where it looks, if it looks outward, an outward appearance, the Bible talks about it, an outward appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof, they're, they're everywhere. They're in positions of power. They're in positions of uh, esteem. They are looked at and admired for their outward, seemingly um, go-getterness and the things that this world kind of looks after. Meanwhile, leaving emotionally battered people behind that can be thrown away because they do not have the uh, the ability to feel the same emotions. So it acts as a way of an advantage to look away, but. The thing about it is, is that it, it, it leads, it all leads to, to death, a walking and talking person who feels nothing, um, but only looks for the outward appearance. It is a slow death. And so I wanted to talk about that today. And I, and I pray that, um, me sharing that, um, opens up the dialogue for those that feel like they're alone, I know what it was fe- it is to feel like there's no one to talk about. I'm, I've talked with women that I've helped um, recover from narcissism, and I, and I am helping um, women that recover from narciss- narcissistic parents, narcissistic siblings, narcissistic uh, spiritual leaders, narcissistic relationships. And once the conversation, it is it is once you feel and you understand, I am not alone. I'm not the only one. It's, it helps the healing process. It helps the forgiveness process. It takes that blame off that we carry, that shame off that says it was your fault for not knowing, for not seeing, for not leaving. And it, and it, and it gives us our power back. So this is that, that today's segment. And we'll continue the conversation. Broken into Purpose is, uh, is is a show that starts to uncover these things of trauma, these things of of uh, things that have tried to hold us back in the past. We are no longer prisoners. It's only the prison that we we that remains that holds our minds captive, that we are limited by. And so once the conversation begins, after we start to speak about it, after we start to share our experiences, the chains break. And we're free to move about being free to be in our truth, but not be limited by it. And so uh, today's episode, I pray that it bless you. I pray that it started something in you. I pray that it did not trigger you. And in fact, if it did, um, sometimes it needs to come to the surface, but I admonish you and I um, advise you, seek counsel, the right counsel, Seek those that are, have gone through or those in wise counsel. Seek coaching that can help you uh, gain your power back. Um, I am a life coach, and um, I am I'm continuing every day to provide services for those, and I've seen major breakthroughs of breaking out of recurring cycles, generational cycles, breaking out of the mindsets of limited beliefs. And so I just wanna offer you that. Um, Stay in contact with me, I have many resources. Go to my website, kalilajohnson.com. That's K-H-A-L-I-L-A-H, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And stay in contact with me, get on my email list and there are many resources available. And uh, connect with me, stay connected. And stay tuned for the next episode. God bless you. I uh, just wanna empower you to know that every single day that you confront is a day that you break through. It's a step-by-step journey. And so I just admonish you to take captive every thought, take captive even your experiences and go for greater, pursue the greater in you. I have this saying uh, and I have it on my site. And so I just want to just let you know that that um, it is, in fact, true that many people are natural born leaders, but are so often groomed in fear, whether one. And so whether on one on one coaching or online training or therapy. um, But for me, my undefeatable system, undefeatable you system, it specializes in self-development, self-discovery and trauma recovery. And this is with proven strategies and mindset and transformation, and we help those exchange a survivor mentality for developing legacy. And so I want you to join our tribe. I invite you to join our tribe get into communities with like-minded individuals that know, yes, we've gone through, but this doesn't stop us. And don't just pursue greatness. Unlock the greatness already within. All right, until next time, I'm Kalila Johnson, your undefeated life coach, reminding you that transformation is intentional. Change requires commitment, and you are your greatest investment in order to make impact. You must begin within. God bless. Talk to you soon.